And so the series treasure, the, the crux of the series, the intent of the series is that each and every one of us in this room would know that God has put treasure within us. That each and every one of us, whilst we're vastly different, while we're different to the person next to, next to us, that, that each of us has a gift, that each of us has been given treasure, like, like George talked about last week. We've each been given a fortune, and then the question is, what will we do with it? Right, what will we do with the treasure that we've been given? And so uh, my aim and our aim as a church is by the end of this series, you would realize that you have been given treasure and you would know what you're going to do with it. You would know what God has given you and you would know what you want to uh, do with it, where you want to, to put it to work. Is that all right? Very cool. Hey, I, I almost forgot one other notice, two other notices, kind of. The first notice is you might have noticed... That's a lot of notice in that one sentence. Uh, that George is not here. George, uh, Jordan Smith, our senior pastor, is down in Dunedin this Sunday. He's uh, he's sharing with them, so that's that's super good. Uh, so make sure you keep him in his in, keep him in his prayers. He'll be in his own prayers. Keep him in your prayers uh, as well. Is that all right? Cool. I'm gonna em, Can you pass me your water bottle or the water bottle? It's not mine. It's pink. Um, as I take a drink, because I somehow managed to wind myself in doing the notices, uh, why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell them what you think you might be having for lunch? Just thoughts. Laura said food. I think that's a, that's a good start, yeah? That's a, that's a good way of going with it. Hey, very cool, very cool. Uh, today, this morning, I want to talk to you um, about motivational gifts, right? I want to talk to you about this, this idea of treasure, and I want to talk about uh, motivational gifts. And uh, last Sunday, uh, I was out at Equipers Lower Hut in the evening, and I preached a kind of version of the sermon. The reason that I say that is because usually you guys are my guinea pigs, right? Usually I write a sermon and you are the first to hear it, but I've already preached this one and it went really well. Um, <laughs> I'm priming you. Oh, it's going to be great. Uh, but, you know, and, and, and so uh, it was cool to get to, to practice it on them. So I'm coming at you guys with round two, right, which is going great. I'm so confident. I keep on not even referring to my notes yet. I'll look at the time and it will be time to wrap up and I haven't started. Um, but no, it's not quite yet. It's not quite yet. Hey, very cool. So uh, today I want to talk to you uh, about the idea of motivational gifts, right? And, and I want to start by quickly explaining what motivational gifts are. And then I want to take us through a, a familiar Bible story and, and look at how we can uh, learn three things from it that maybe we haven't learned from it before. Is that all right? Very cool. Hey, I need you to be nice and noisy. Can I get like a, um, a whoop? Can you do some whoops? That's good. That's good. Um, that's, that's nice. That's nice. Okay, cool. Uh, you know, motivational gifts are interesting. Yeah. Who here thinks motivational gifts are interesting? Maybe not, right? Some people are like, oh, I don't know, right? But motivational gifts are interesting. And one of the things that I find uh, the most interesting about them is that there is a lot more written in Christian literature about motivational gifts than there actually is in the Bible, right? Which I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just acknowledging that up front. Right, that most of what you read about motivational gifts might not actually be from the Bible. In fact, the term motivational gifts isn't actually found in the Bible. Right, so, so we need to at first approach motivational gifts understanding that. Right, that this might be a biblical concept, but at the same time, a lot of what we hear about motivational gifts isn't necessarily from the Bible. So we need to take it uh, with a bit of a grain of salt. Yeah, you know, motivational gifts are, are interesting. In, in the Bible, they're 
They're referred to in three different scriptures, right? Three key scriptures that uh, Christian literature has pulled uh, the idea of motivational gifts from. Those scriptures are Romans 12, chapter 6, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 12, verses 6 to 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, and 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 9 to 11. The most widely referenced of these is Romans chapter 12, right? So I figured we'd start by reading Romans chapter 12. It says this, we'll put it up on the big screen. Maybe he's going to do that in fantastic form. There we go. Uh, it says this. I'll move to the side so you can read it too. In his grace, God has given us, this is Paul writing to the church in Rome, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as he has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you the leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have the gift of showing kindness to others, do it gladly. You know, so from uh, Romans chapter 12, we've widely interpreted uh, motivational gifts to fall into the following categories, right? Serving, teaching, encouragement, generosity, leadership, and mercy, right? Prophesying is, is sometimes included, but it gets confusing because it's also referred to as an ascension ministry, and, and we'll talk about that in October, right? We'll leave that for now. Don't worry about it. But here's the thing, right? Five minutes, uh, when I wrote this, I assumed this would be five minutes into my sermon. It's more like 10. Uh, but, you know, this far into the sermon, I have a bit of an admission, right? Most times I preach, I seem to, I seem to have a very heavy-laden conscience. I'm often ad- admitting things, right? Thank you for coming to my therapy session. I really appreciate it. It helps me get through the week. Uh, but by a bit of an admission, right? I, to be honest, I don't like the concept of motivational gifts, which is a bit awkward when George is like, hey, Jono, could you please preach on motivational gifts? It's like, oh, yeah, it's going to be an interesting sermon, right? Okay, we'll see what we can do there. Um, but, but see, the thing, the thing that I don't like about motivational gifts is I don't disagree with them, right? They're in the Bible. I agree that, that we are each gifted to do certain things, and we have certain things that we can do better. That's self-evident if you've ever talked to someone, right? Some people are, are more gifted in certain areas than they are in others, right? That, that's just true. But the, the thing that, that I find hard about motivational gifts is so often when I, I read the literature around motivational gifts, the goal seems to, to be to give people a box that they can fit in, right? The goal seems to be to give people a, a box that they can kind of place around themselves. And my problem with that is I, I, I firmly believe that I think the Bible says that people don't ever fit in boxes. Because here's the thing, even if we tried to fit ourselves in a box, even if I was like, right, these are the parameters of my life and I, I won't step out of them. I, I happen to serve an almighty God, right, who happens to kind of specialize in getting people to step outside of their boxes and doing things that they don't exactly feel gifted in, right? So, so that leads me to a bit of a tension when, when I, I, I read about motivational gifts and I think, but at the same time, it's great to know what you're good at, but God's really good at using you to do things that you're not good at for amazing effect, right? In fact, I got a little bit frustrated when I was doing research for the sermon because I found one resource uh, and its goal was allow you to figure out which motivational gifts your child has, right? Which, which uh, let me explain it to you. It said some stuff like, uh, does your child enjoy detective stories? If so, their motivational gifting is a leader, right? I'm like, probably most children enjoy detective stories, but okay, then there was another one, right? It was like, does your child enjoy coloring in? 
Yes, most children enjoy coloring in, right? If so, your child is a server, right? And, and see, I think what frustrates me about this is all too often as Christians, we can inadvertently use motivational gifts to label ourselves and to label others and to build a box that we can comfortably fit in, right? And, and what that results in is, is conversations like, oh, hey, would you like to join the packing team? To which the person responds, oh, I can't really, I'm, I'm more mercy gifted, Right, like, oh, who, who, would I, who would I, you know, interact with in a mercy capacity if I'm on the packing team? It sounds like, sounds like serving, right? You should probably ask someone who's more serving gifted because I just really like being quite merciful. Or, or would you like to say hello to new people, right? Would you like to not even just be a host, but let's be a friendly church? I don't say hello to new people. I'm a teacher, right? So, I, I, I mean, I could explain biblical concepts to them, but I'm not going to say hello because that's really, that's someone else's lane, right? I'm just going to stay in my lane, which is funny because what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians and what Peter is saying in, in 1 Peter isn't, this is your box, stick in it, but is instead, do what you naturally can do well and do it wholeheartedly. See, motivational gifts are not meant to be a thing that limits you. It's meant to be something that encourages us to give our all at the things that we can do well. The concept of motivational gifts isn't meant to be a box to put us in. The concept of motivational gifts is meant to encourage us that we are unique. And it's meant to encourage us that our uniqueness is a strength, that we're not called to be just like the person next to us, but that we each have individual and special makeups that God designed so that we can be all He made us to be. See, Paul always prefaces talking about gifts by talking about the body of Christ, right? which I don't think is, is just a hacky, a hacky. It's definitely not a hacky circumstance. I don't think it's a, a hacky. Uh, I said it again. Goodness gracious. What? Hacky. Oh, it's just, she's my safe spot. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's a, a happy coincidence. Circumstance wasn't even the right word, right? I don't think it's a, a happy coincidence. See, because the thing is, is our natural inclinations are meant to, to be what helps us to work together as the people of Christ, as the body of Christ to change the world, right? Bill Hybels says that it's because we are committed to community, we are committed to serving one another and serving one another no matter what our gifts are. So, so today, I'm, I'm not going to talk about how to determine what your, your gift kind of mixes, right? I'm not going to talk about how we can determine, you know, I'm this and then I'm this. I'm not going to take us through a Myers-Briggs test or a, or a strength finder or anything like that because I think we're all called to have many gifts and, and we can identify with, with one more than another, but, but a box will only limit us, right? So I want to encourage you, though, if you are interested in finding what your natural kind of uh, predisposition is, what areas might be kind of your grace zones to borrow from the Christian literature. Um, th there's lots of stuff that you can read, right? Go do a, um, you know, the, the creme de la creme, I think, is do a strengths finder test with a Christian strengths finder coach. That's the, that, that will definitely uh, reveal some stuff to you that will help, right? It, mainly it helps you to avoid frustration, which is good sometimes. Sometimes we need to get frustrated because we need to press into something that God wants us to press into so that we can get his help to do it. But that is a, another sermon. Right, But I guess what I'm saying is, is that 
Just because you identify with, say, mercy or, or serving doesn't mean you won't be called out of your comfort zone to, to lead or, or to give or to teach, right? And so I want to encourage you, uh, go in and, and have a look at that. But at the same time, bear in mind that if, if the people that God called to change the world only ever did what they were good at, the Bible would read very differently, right? Moses would never have led the people of Israel out of Egypt, right? Because he would have been like, I got a stutter. I'm not a very good leader. I can't do this, right? Pass on me. This is not my motivational gifting. Sorry, God, maybe you should uh, choose someone else, right? And, and there's multitudes of examples in the Bible. Instead, today, I want to ask you a question, all right? Is that all right? Ready for a question? I want to ask you the question, what happens when you don't feel like your gifts line up with your dreams, Right, what happens when you don't feel like your motivational gifts, the things that you are naturally good at, the things that you feel like you can do, what happens when you don't feel like they line up with your dreams? Furthermore, what happens when you, you think of your dream? Right, you think of someone accomplishing this thing that, that you want to accomplish, doing this thing that you want to do, and you imagine what they would look like. You imagine what they would be like. And if you're honest with yourself, you don't imagine you. You imagine someone different. And in fact, maybe that person is, is defined by the things that you lack. You think of someone doing what you want to do, and you imagine someone who is just someone else, right? You feel like you're gifted in serving. And the person that you imagine accomplishing your dream is, is boldly speaking, and you think, man, I can't do that. Right? Or, or you, you, you feel like you're gifted in teaching and, and you see someone doing what you want to do and you imagine someone who's diligently organizing and administrating and you think, man, I can't even arrange my life, let alone something more than myself. Right? Today, my sermon is titled, if you're taking notes, I wish I had a sword. Right, today I want to look at a story that we've all heard before. In fact, I, I talked about it at Revolution Youth about a month ago. But I want to look at the story, and the story is of the ultimate apparent mismatch between gifting and calling. Right, the ultimate apparent mismatch between ability and dream. And I want to pull from this story three ideas that I don't think we've necessarily seen in our usual readings of the story. Is that all right? Very cool. I'm going to pause right now, and we're going to pray. Is that cool? Why don't you bow your heads with me? Why don't you close your eyes uh, and let's pray. God, I thank you for this, this space. God, I thank you for this opportunity, God, that, that we gather together as a people, that we gather together as a family and we lean into you. God, I thank you that you're always speaking, God. God, I thank you that you're, you're always saying something to us. And I pray that this morning we wouldn't miss what it is that you're saying. God, I pray this morning that it wouldn't be my words, that it wouldn't be my communication, but that you would be in the space in between, that we would all be profoundly aware that you are here and it's not me speaking, but it's you speaking. God, that you would be in this place, that you would touch hearts, that you would empower dreams, that you would heal us where we've been hurt and, and left broken and desolate. God, I pray that we would leave different than when we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. Nice, nice. Hey, turn with me. Who's got a Bible? Yeah, good, good. If you don't have a Bible, we do have them on the big screen. Uh, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17, right? You may have guessed it when I was kind of leading up, talking about the underdog and the mismatch, that we're going to look at the story of David and Goliath. Who knows the story of David and Goliath? Yeah? I do not believe you. Like, only three of you raised your hands. Who knows the story of David and Goliath? Yeah, that's good. 
I'm enjoying this congregation participation. That's that's good, right? Uh, the story of David and Goliath, right? We know it. We know it. We know it. Not even if we grew up in Bible uh, school, right? I almost forgot what that, that was called. I was going to call it Bible college. You don't grow up in Bible college, maybe you do. Anyway, even if we didn't go to Bible school, right? We know this story because it's it's managed to make its way into popular culture, right? We, when we talk about a mismatch, when we talk about an underdog defeating the person who they're the underdog in relation to, we often refer to it as a, a David and Goliath sort of situation, Right? And, and so in, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we have this story of David and Goliath. And, and in this story, the, the kind of background is the Philistines, who are the bad guys. Philistines, you go boo, right? Philistines, yeah, it's good, it's good. But, but just pretend you dislike them a little bit more than that boo conveyed, right? Philistines, yeah, it's good, that's good. We could do it like a, what are those shows called where you hold up the... A pantomime, that would be fun. Let's do a pantomime next time I preach. Uh, anyway, I can have it on this anyway. Oh, man. Jono, your brain is like fluffy ducks. Um, it's not a saying. Uh, the Philistines. The Philistines are attempting to invade Israel. Israel is the heroes. I like this a lot. Um, so the, the Philistines are attempting to invade Israel. And the way that they're doing it is uh, they're coming in from the sea. I'm just... Oh, goodness gracious, this is far too much fun. Uh, the Philistines are coming in from the sea. Oh, I love my life. Uh, the first one's coming in from the ocean. Yeah, good. Uh, and, and, and they're attempting to climb the mountains. I don't know what, don't know what noise coming from the mountains. We're never going to finish this sermon if you make sound effects for everything, all right? Which I'm, I'm all right with. Um, but uh, the Philistines, they're coming in from the ocean. They're trying to invade. <laughs> no more sound effects because I will not finish the story. They're trying to invade into Israel. And the way that it works is that the Israelites have retreated up into the mountains. And in the space between the coast and the mountains is a bunch of valleys. And these valleys, this, this area of valleys is called the Shephelah. Right, and, and basically what's happened is the, the Israelites are hiding up in the mountains, the Philistines are down in the valleys, and they end up in a standoff, right? Because what happens is the, the Philistine army come into one uh, valley and they set up camp, and they set up camp on the northern, sorry, on the, the southern ridge of this valley. It's called the Valley of Elah. And then the Israelites see them and they, they come in and they come down from the mountains and they set up camp on the northern side of the valley, right? The reason I'm telling you this is because the result is each army is on either side of the valley, right? So for the other army to attack their enemy, they have to go down into the valley and climb the other side, right? And whenever either army tries to climb the other side of the valley to fight their enemy, they get utterly defeated, Right, because the guys up the top of the valley are just like, yeah, roll some rocks down, right? Yeah, throw some cows. Yeah, let's empty our sewage at them. I'm just assuming that this is how medieval warfare worked. That's what I would have done. Yeah, dead cows. Cows you're not using anymore. This cow is not used anymore. Throw it down the hill. Um, and, and so the result is, is that neither army can gain any traction. Right? Neither army can, can make any sort of an advance. And so they're stuck in a stalemate. Right? They're stuck in this standoff. And so in the middle of this standoff, the Philistines have this idea to solve this, this impasse that they're at. And they send out their best warrior. Right, This is a story that we know, a, a giant named Goliath. And he goes down into the valley floor and he calls out to the Israelites. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 8 to 10, it says this. Right, I'm reading from the message translation. Goliath calls out, 
And he says, yeah, nice. Why bother using your whole army? Am I not Philistine enough for you? And, and you're all committed to Saul, aren't you? So pick your best fighter and pit him against me. If he gets the upper hand and kills me, the Philistines will all become your slaves. But if I get the upper hand and kill him, you'll all become our slaves and serve us. I challenge the troops of Israel this day, give me a man, let us fight it out together. Right? And, and even though the entire Israelite army know that if you win this fight, your dreams are met. Even though the entire Israelite army know that, that if you win this fight, you never have to pay taxes again. Your family, who, who would like to not pay taxes? No, you want to pay taxes because that's your civil duty, right? I'm just joking, just joking. Uh, it was a bad joke. Uh, but, but uh, you know, you, you don't get to pay taxes. They earned it, right? They killed a Goliath. But anyway, they, um, you don't get to pay taxes. Your family doesn't have to pay taxes. And you get to marry the daughter of the king right? It's, it's a pretty sweet setup. So even though the Israelite army know that, that if you manage to kill Goliath, your dreams would come true, no one wants to step forward. No one wants to try it, right? Because here's the thing, even if you step forward and you were valiant and you were bold and you died, right? It's, it's not, you're dead. You don't really mind. You'll go down as a, a guy who tried really hard, like a semi-hero. But, but at the same time, your entire family is going to be in slavery, and all of their friends will be in slavery. And all of their friends will be in slavery. And everyone will know it's your fault. Right? We, we would be free. But Jono thought he could defeat Goliath. Right? Jono thought he was amazing. Jono walked down there and, and saw Goliath standing nine feet tall, covered in, in glittering bronze armor with his spear and his javelin and his sword and his shield and his bronze helmet. And he thought... He could kill him, but he didn't. He lost, and we have to suffer the consequences, right? We left Jono in the Valley of Elah, but here we are enslaved by the Philistines. Here we are having lost our homeland, and so no one wants to step forward. And, and as we know, David visits this battle, and, and he steps forward, and he says, if no one else will fight Goliath, I will. Right, and this is the reason that we know this story, because it goes on to become the, the archetypical underdog story. David versus Goliath, the little guy stepping up to take on the big guy with all of the odds against him. And, and there's some lessons here for us, and these lessons go beyond God can do much with the little that we give him, although that is an important lesson. Right, see, here David is, and he has a dream. David has, has a calling. David has a mission, something that he knew he had to do. He knew he had to save Israel from the invading Philistines, and he has to do it by defeating this impossible warrior. But David has a problem. David wasn't a warrior. David's gifts did not line up with his dreams. David dreamt of defeating this mighty warrior, but no one would have seen him as a warrior. No one would have seen him as a soldier. No one would have seen him as, as capable in this realm, in this space, at doing this task, right? To his father, David was the youngest. To his father, David was the one who looks after the flocks, the one who, who was so forgotten about that, that when the prophet came to see if any of his sons could be the king of Israel, he forgets about David. Right, David is forgotten in, in, in the fields. He was a shepherd. And to the king, right, the king knew David. 
But the king didn't know David because he'd shown up at the, the Israelite Olympics and, and amazed everyone with feats of skill and strength, right? The king, King Saul, knew of David because David had won the ancient Israel version of X Factor. I'm being serious, right? David had won the ancient Israel version of X Factor. One day, King Saul couldn't sleep. And so he says to his, his officials, he says, find me someone in the land, hold a competition, find me someone in the land who is musically talented, who can sing or, or play an instrument that will put me at peace. And so they go out and, and, and they search the land and David is chosen as the winner because he can play the harp. Right, and so here you have this boy who is a shepherd who the king looks at and says, you're the boy who puts me at peace with your beautiful, beautiful music. You're not a soldier. You're not a warrior. You're not skilled in the art of war or, or combat. You're a musician. Why, why would we think that you can win for us? Right? When, when anyone imagined someone defeating Goliath, they would have imagined a warrior. They would have imagined a soldier, someone tall and, and strong and experienced with a sword and a shield and a spear and a javelin. And David wasn't any of those things. And so when he says he'll fight Goliath, Saul tries his best to make him into one of those things. Right? It, it says, if we can chuck up the scripture, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 17 again, this time verse 38 to 39, David has volunteered to fight Goliath. And it says, then... Saul outfitted David as a soldier in armor. He put his bronze helmet on his head and belted his sword on him over his armor. David tried to walk, but he could hardly budge. David told Saul, I can't even move with all this stuff on me. I'm not used to it. And so he took it all off. It then says in, in, in verse 40, Then David took his shepherd's staff, selected five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the pocket of his shepherd's pack. With his sling in hand, he approached Goliath. Now, imagine being David in this moment. Imagine being in David's shoes, right? The expectation is that you would send a warrior to kill a warrior. Right, that you would send a soldier to kill a soldier, but David wouldn't feel that he was a soldier. In fact, he's not. He's a shepherd. Right? He's a good shepherd. He, he's been talented at being a shepherd. He's killed lions and bears defending his flock, but a lion or a bear is not the giant warrior champion of an entire people group. Right? He's good at what he's good at, but he's a shepherd, not a warrior, not worse, just different. See, I think we can all relate to this feeling. We have a dream. We have a calling. We have a mission. And we can feel like we're the wrong fit for it. We can feel like, like we can pray a prayer like, God, why would you give me this dream? Right? Surely someone else would be better suited to this dream. I can't do this. It's outside of my skill set. I'm, I'm not the right fit. Right? I'm not eloquent enough, or I'm not organized enough, or I'm not trained enough, or I'm too trained. Whatever it is, if you're honest with yourself, it feels like you're not enough. Right? It feels like you're a shepherd sent to kill a giant, and you just wish. You wish that you had a sword. You wish that you were different than you are. You wish that you were a soldier. What, what happens when you feel like your gifts don't line up with your dreams? 
My first point uh, this morning, and, and I'm more than halfway through, so don't worry, we won't be here past lunch. Uh, my first point this morning is when you feel like a shepherd sent to fight a giant, my first point is ask yourself, what is in your hand? See, here's the thing, right? In, in ancient warfare, there were three types of warriors, three types of people that would be on the battlefield. The, the first type of person is the cavalry, right? Cavalry are, are men riding horses, right? Either uh, with chariots or on horseback. The, the second type of warrior is heavy infantry, right? A heavy infantryman, that's like Goliath, someone who is, is covered in armor and has a, a multitude of weapons, and they'll just wade into the battle and just beat on the other person until someone falls over, right? That's their goal. And, and the third type of, of warrior in ancient warfare is the artillery, Right, and the artillery is, is usually archers, but more importantly, the artillery contains slingers. Right, and a slinger is someone who has a leather pouch, and attached to that leather pouch is two long cords. Right, and what a, a slinger would do is they would put a projectile, a rock or a, a small lead ball or something like that, into the pouch of their sling, and they would hold both of the cords of their sling, and they would spin it above their head. Right, and they would spin it until they were spinning it so fast that it was going around about 30, uh, sorry, six or seven revolutions per second, right? They were spinning it very quickly above their head. And then they would release just one set of the cords. And as a result, the projectile in their sling would, would travel out at around about 35 meters per second. See, a, a slinger, when I read about uh, David and Goliath, I always used to think of his sling as a slingshot, right? Like I would literally think of Bart Simpson. So I'd think of David, he'd be like, ah, yeah, man, I totally kill you, Goliath. And then he'd jump on his skateboard and he'd ride down into the Valley of Elah, right? And he'd be like, because that's how you stop skateboards if you're cool. If you're me, you just kind of fall off and run and then trip over. Uh, but, but he'd get off his skateboard and he'd be like, well, well, I don't even know what's... Bart Simpson's phrase. I want to say cowabunga, but that's definitely not it. Anyway, it is. Cowabunga, eat my shorts, right? He'd be like, cowabunga, hey Goliath, eat my shorts. <laughs> this is great. Right, and then he'd, he'd pull out his slingshot, right? And he'd put a little pebble in it. He'd be like, hey Goliath, ba-doing! Right, and then Goliath would get like, hit. And Goliath would be like, oh, and fall over. And so like, that's weird. Right, like, how does that work? Right, like, did, it's just, did Goliath have like a stroke just as the the people hit him because that doesn't seem to work, right? It doesn't seem to make sense. But, and when we think about David in that way, it actually weakens our view of ourselves because we think of, of David as, as being totally ill-equipped and David wasn't ill-equipped. He was just misequipped, seemingly. He just didn't have what seemed like the right skills. See, when you think of yourself and you think of your dream, you might think that you don't have any skills. That's not true. You might just have skills that are different to those that you think you need. But see, what happens here is, is David didn't have a slingshot. You don't have a slingshot in life. You have a sling. There is something in life that you are good at. There is something in life that you have learned how to do. And, and that's what's in your hands. See, this morning, we need to ask ourselves, what is in our hands? And do we believe that we can make a difference in the world with what we've got? Do we believe that, that with who we are, with our, our skills and our gifts and our way of being uniquely us, we can make a difference? Or are we looking at our sling and saying, this could never do anything? 
Right? Are, we, are we looking at our sling and then we're waiting for Saul to come along and give us armor and a sword when our perfect weapon is maybe something we see as ordinary and mundane? See, often in life, we imagine someone achieving our dream. And we imagine them as, as different than us. We imagine them as having all of the things that we don't have. But could it be this morning that God has given you the dream that he's given you because he knows that you have the unique set of, of motivational gifts and abilities to get it done? See, what, what I find amazing is God could have chosen anyone to be here right now. Throughout all of history, God had his pick. God, God could have chosen anyone to be a, a part of Equipper's church, right? He could have chosen anyone to give the dream that he gave you. He could have chosen John the Baptist or, or Elijah or Esther or Ruth or, or Peter or Mary, but, but he chose us. And so surely God knows what he's doing. See, it, it's interesting. God has placed inside of you something that is far greater than what the world tries to put on you. But if we're not careful... We look at what the world wants to put on us, and we believe the lie that that's what we need. See, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, tells us to strip off every weight that weighs us down. Right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, says that we are God's masterpiece, created anew in Jesus to do the good things that He planned for us. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, says that God is able to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think or imagine. See, here's the thing. Sometimes we believe the lie that God calls the qualified. God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies the called. See, it's said again and again because it's true. You don't have to have it all together to be used by God. You just have to hear the call and respond. See, David knew that he was called. And he knew that it's not the armor that makes the warrior. He knew that it was something inside of him. See, this morning, don't underestimate the power of what you already have in your hand. This morning, what has God placed in your life that you've been overlooking? Right? You've, been, you've been waiting until you're a stronger leader before you try and step out and start that e-group. Right? You've, you've been waiting until you feel like you understand more about your faith before you talk to your friend about what you believe. Right? You're waiting for this, this distant version of yourself to become a reality before you walk out and attempt to do the things that God's called you to do. Right? If you're honest with yourself, you see your giant, but you're waiting to become a soldier. You're waiting for a sword. You're, you're wishing for a sword, but God has given you a sling. Maybe today, over the rest of the day, just think about what's in your hand. What do you have? What can you do? See, the thing is, is some of you believe the lie that you've got nothing in your hand. That's not true, but sometimes you just need to look at the things that you have decided are mundane and ordinary and realize that they're not. That the things that you can do are extraordinary. That the things that you can do are amazing. And God has given you that ability, given you that, that training and that experience for a reason. Because here's the thing, right? This is where it gets interesting. When we step forward trusting God, when we, when we step forward trusting that what God has put in our hands is enough, that, that even though we don't feel like our gifts line up with our dreams, that we trust that God knows what He's doing, that God knows better, that He gave us these gifts and these motivations and these abilities, and He's caused this dream that we have to burn within our hearts. And so we step out believing that something will happen. Here's the thing. When we step out as shepherds to face down a giant, 
God blesses the very ground that we walk on. See, my, my second point this morning is when you feel like a shepherd sent to face a giant, when you feel like your gifts don't line up with your dreams, my second point is ask yourself, what's at your feet? See, see here's what I mean. The reason I ask that question is because we all have a dream. Right? We all have, have a dream of doing something or, or changing something, and you might have pushed it aside, or you might have pushed it so down that you don't dream the dream anymore, because when you dream the dream, it hurts. Right? And we don't like to hurt. We don't like to, to hurt. And so when you dream this dream of doing this thing that you feel like you can't do, when you feel like a, a shepherd sent to face a giant when you should be a soldier, and that makes you uncomfortable, you just kind of push the dream down until you can't feel the dream anymore until you're not really dreaming the dream anymore, but it's still deep down buried in you. And we push this dream so deep down, right? You feel like a shepherd on a battlefield, inexperienced, ill-equipped, and scared, right? You feel like you can't do anything. Maybe the solution, maybe the way that you can pull your dream back out and start to dare to dream again is you need to look a little bit harder. Because maybe God is blessing the very ground that you were afraid to walk on. See, here's the thing. Historians have, have researched the Valley of Elah, and they found something very, very interesting, right? I'm not overhyping this. It's very, very interesting. Prepare to have your minds blown, right? The Valley of Elah has a deposit of, of minerals. I'm not going to look at Matt too much because he is a geologist, geographist. He does ground science. Um, and, and, and so I might say these words wrong or mislabel them, but you'll get the intent. Uh, there's a deposit of the mineral barium sulfate, right? Barium sulfate, which is, is more uh, frequently referred to as barite. And, and barite is very special for just one reason. The reason that barite is special is because it's very heavy. See, see what this means is, is that the stones in the Valley of Elah, Right, the, the five smooth stones that David would have bent down and picked up to put in his shepherd's pack were not normal stones. In fact, these stones were twice the density of normal stones, right? They were twice as heavy as a normal stone, which is like, okay, yeah. And it's like, yeah, you're right, you're right. Science check, da ding right? Geologist approved. And, and so these, these stones are twice as heavy as normal stones, which means that when David put the stone, which was twice as heavy as a normal stone, into his sling, which he would have spun around his head at six or seven revolutions per second, releasing the stone at a speed of 35 meters per second, what this means is that when the seemingly normal stone was flung from a seemingly mundane sling and it hit Goliath, to Goliath it didn't feel like a stone. When the stone hit Goliath, it did so with the equivalent stopping power, the equivalent impact of a bullet fired from a handgun. See, see, what this means is that David didn't throw a pebble at Goliath. David shot him in the head. See, what's going on here is David walked into the valley of Elah thinking that he was stepping into single combat wildly unprepared. He walked into this battle, into this situation, into this dream, thinking that he was a shepherd attempting to fight a soldier, that, that he would never make it, but he had to try because God had given him this dream. But God had gone before him. God knew that he was going to deliver the people of Israel with a shepherd and a sling. And so whilst David and everyone else thought that he was the underdog, thought that he would never make it, David was essentially bringing a handgun to a knife fight. 
See, see, what's happening here is maybe you think of your dream. Maybe you imagine someone doing your dream and they're not you, but the reason they're not you is because you have been given your dream because you are uniquely gifted to accomplish it in a way that no one else could in a way that maybe doesn't make sense. And so when you have that dream in your heart and you've shoved it down deep and you don't dare to dream it again, I want you to pull it back up and I want you to remember this story. That maybe you've been given this dream because the God who holds the universe in His hand, the God who breathed the, the world into being, the God who keeps the heart pumping in your chest actually knows what He's doing that it wasn't a mistake that you dreamed this dream, that it wasn't a mistake that you have the abilities that you have, but that God placed the abilities in you that He did for a reason and dared to make you dream this dream because you are the only one who can bring a gun to a knife fight. See, God's not interested in just winning. He wants to be more. He wants to make us more than overcomers. See, the definition of being more than an overcomer is shooting a giant in the head when you shouldn't win. Yeah, come on up, Jack. See, God loves to use things that aren't obvious so that onlookers will be in no doubt that God is at work. See, my favorite part of this story, of, of the whole story of David in, in 1 Samuel, uh, is, is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 9 to 11. Don't, don't put it up yet. We'll We'll put it up in a second. But I, I feel like his whole life, David has felt like he should be a soldier, right? I feel like his, his whole life, he's felt like he's called to be a warrior, but he isn't, right? And I, I feel like I relate to this, this frustration between the, the, the me that I feel I should be and the me that I know I currently am. Right, this, this space between who we are and, and who we want to be. And maybe it's because as a kid, I read a lot of uh, stories about King Arthur. But, but I really, I like the idea of the sword, right? I like the idea of like a, a magical, amazing weapon that, you know, you're, you're nothing until you have it and you have it and you're incredible. But, but the problem is, is that it's not a biblical concept, right? There's nothing special about a sword. But see, what happens is in this story in, in First Samuel chapter 21, it's a few years on. Right, and, and King Saul's admiration of David has turned to fear because he sees that the people of Israel love David, that, that he seems to have the, the gifts and the abilities to be a king. He's, he's got the anointing to be a king that, that King Saul has lost. And so he fears David. And then as time goes on, King Saul's fear turns into hate. And he starts to, to hate David, this, this man that he used to treat as a son. He starts to plot his downfall. And, and so King Saul goes so far as to attempt an ambush at David's home. Right, And so in the middle of the night, David's wife, King Saul's daughter, wakes him up and says, My father is coming to kill you. You have to run. And so in the middle of the night, David flees, but he hasn't got any weapons with him. He hasn't got any, any resources. He hasn't packed a bag to run away from his father-in-law, right? And, and so he's out in the middle of nowhere and he has nothing. And he's being chased by people who want to kill him. And, and he goes to a priest named Amalek. And he goes to this priest and the, the priest gives him the blessed bread to eat. And, and then it says in, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, Verses uh, 9 to 11. I'm going to read verse 8 first. 
As, as David said to Amalek, the priest, do you have a spear or a sword of any kind around here? I didn't have a chance to grab my weapons. The king's mission was urgent and I left in a hurry. And the priest replies saying this, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine you killed at Oak Valley, that's the Valley of Elah, is here. It's behind the ephod wrapped in a cloth. If you want it, take it. There's nothing else here. Oh, said David, there's no sword like that. Give it to me. And that, that David shot out of there running for his life from Saul. He went to Ashes, king of Gath. We'll leave it there. See, see, what's happening here is my third point is that God has a sword for you. See, I love the circular nature of the story that David starts off killing Goliath as a shepherd, but he becomes a warrior king. See, that the image that you have of you, the you that you feel that you could be or that you should be, this, this dream that you have of your ideal version of yourself, that the version of yourself that you feel you need to be to do the things that you feel called to do, God will transform you into that person. It might not look exactly how you think, right? You might imagine yourself covered in King Saul's armor, carrying King Saul's sword, but, but God has a sword for you. That, that dream that you have of the, the you that's gonna do the dream, God will make you into that you. But the crazy thing is, is that the dream will happen before you become that person. See, here's the thing, right? That God will transform you into that person. God has a sword for you, but the sword comes after the battle. The sword becomes after the battle because the sword isn't validation. The sword isn't a, a magical weapon that you take from the Lady of the Lake and it's Excalibur and all of a sudden you're a king. The sword isn't that type of sword. The sword isn't validation. It's confirmation. The sword confirms what you've already learned about yourself because you stepped out with a sling to face a soldier. See, David became a warrior without the sword. And because of that, when he got the sword, his faith wasn't in the sword. His faith wasn't, oh man, I'm only ever going to win these battles as long as I have the sword of Saul or the sword of Goliath because the sword is magical. He realized that it wasn't the weapon because the weapon didn't make sense. So the thing that must be the X factor was God. See, as, as you step out and face the giant, as you're using what is in your hand, as God blesses the very ground that you walk on, the very thing that came against you, the very thing that, that made it seem impossible, the obstacle that came at you, the thing that seemed in the way of your dream and your calling will become your tool for the next season will become your tool for the, the next dream. See, God has a sword for you, but you get it after the battle. So your faith isn't in the weapon, but in the God behind it. So that when you become educated, that becomes a tool, but your faith isn't in your education. It's in the God who is with you. So that when you gain abilities and become better at, at organizing or speaking or whatever else it is, that, that that becomes a tool, but your faith isn't in the ability but the God who moved even when you didn't have that ability. Because after the giant comes the next battle. After the giant comes the next dream. And in the moment that you feel that you can achieve that dream on your own, it's too small a dream. That moment that you feel that you can make it work on your own, you're dreaming without God and you need to dream again.
happens, just as I finish, what happens when you feel like a, a shepherd sent to face a giant? What happens when you feel like your, your gifts and your abilities don't line up and, and aren't enough to accomplish your dream? I want to encourage you in that space, in that moment when you feel like you're not enough, stop. Stop and, and take a, a deep breath. Stop and, and take a deep breath and look at what it is that you have in your hands. Look at what you're gifted in. Look at what you can do. And, and even as you start to use it, even if it, it feels mismatched, as you start to apply what you have to the dream that God has given you, God will start to bless the ground that you walk on, that ground that you're afraid to step out into. And you go from being the underdog to the unexpected. You realize that you've been set up. You realize that you were afraid, but in reality, you had no reason. And see, that doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. Right? Facing a giant with a sling is, is hard work. But it does mean that you're pressing on to victory. It means that you win that battle and, and that the weapon brought against you will become the weapon you wield for the next dream. See, because you need to remember, we need to remember, it's not the sword. It's the God who gave it to you. See, here's the thing. I, I know I went over time and I, I apologize. But I, I want us to finish up. And the band's going to lead us in, in the bridge of uh, that song, Not Afraid. In fact, Maddie, if we could chuck up the, the lyrics to the bridge, that would be awesome. Because here's the thing. We all have a dream. Right? We all have something that we feel called to do, something that we feel that we, we, we are, we're meant to make a change in. But it, it's way easier to believe the lie that we're not enough and the dream is a mistake than it is to step out as a shepherd to face a giant. But the thing is, is that just like David needed to defeat Goliath for the nation of Israel, we need to step out into our dreams, realizing the treasure that God has placed within us. We need to defeat our giants for the city of Wellington. See, the way that Equipage Church has a measurable impact in the city is when the people of Equipage Church stand up with slings in hand walk down into the valley of Elah, afraid but still stepping out. See, when we say, I'm not afraid anymore, that doesn't mean that we don't feel fear. Fear is still present. What it means is that our fear is not our God. We are not defined by our fear. We're not defined by our lack. We're defined by our realization that our God is bigger, that our God can use a sling to kill a giant. So as the band leads us in these lyrics, as we put the lyrics up, as, as we start to sing out, I want this to be our prayer. That we realize that it's not our strength, that it's not our ability. Come on, why don't you stand to your feet?